the very first encounter that I had down there in Laredo. And there was one border patrol agent to 60 different men. And he looked at me, didn't know me from anywhere and said, I need help, we're being invaded. This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, May 8th. I'm Virginia Allen. And that was Sheena Rodriguez, founder and president of Alliance for Safe Texas. Children are being exploited at the southern border. Children are in many ways bearing the brunt of so many of the tragic policies that have been put in place at the southern border that have led to the current crisis. And Sheena, through her work at Alliance for Safe Texas, is working to expose some of the problems and to bring accountability. She joins me on the show today to talk about the work of her organization and what she has learned after nearly three dozen trips to the southern border, where she has talked to some of those kids and heard their stories about how they wound up unaccompanied at our southern border. Stay tuned for our conversation after this. Looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues from America's outpost here in Washington? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. You'll get top conservative research, a rundown of important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, and hot takes from our experts. Sign up at heritage.org agenda or at the link in the show notes. We are joined today by Sheena Rodriguez. Sheena is the founder and president of Alliance for Safe Texas. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Sheena, your organization, your mission is really all about raising awareness about what is going on with our southern border and how the situation at the border is impacting individuals' lives, whether that's American lives or the migrants themselves who are coming across and coming to America. But um, this is not always the work that you've been doing. How did you come into this kind of work? Yeah, so uh, thank you for asking that question because I get asked that a lot and I think people are a little bit surprised. You know, I, I, I'm just a homeschooling mom. That's it. Uh, you know, my, my education is actually in developmental psychology. I used to work, uh, was a former educator, um, used to teach fourth grade and preschool children. Um, but really, my, my heart and my advocacy has always been in the pro-life movement. And so I actually, for a number of years in North Texas, where I live, I was a volunteer counselor for a pro-life center out there um, and saw in Irving, Texas at the time when we still had that location out there and saw kind of some different elements that people did not, this was years ago when my children were little, may not have been aware of, uh, particularly with immigration of uh, forced arranged marriages. Um, and so, uh, and, and my family being Puerto Rican, my husband is a first generation Mexican American, we've always been kind of cognizant of uh, immigration and, and some of the issues and things that, the different ways that it impacts the communities and individual lives that, like you said, that people may not always connect those dots. Mm -hmm. um, so really, I've never, fast forward to about three years ago, I, I was never really in the political realm, if you will. I voted in general elections, thought I was well-informed, um, you know, thought I was doing the right thing and always kind of voted what I believed to be my pro-life agenda, right? My, my pro-life values. Um, and unfortunately found out very quickly that if I wanted to try and save 
my the great state of Texas and in our sovereign nation that uh, really unfortunately politics was where I needed to be. Uh, so then I was already advocating in the state of Texas in our capital for kind of all things conservative. Um, and when I started going down to the border uh, in Texas and seeing for myself what was happening, I began to see very quickly the exploitation of human beings on all levels mm. and um, the devastation that was being in, 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 you know, inflicted, uh, like you had said, like on the lives of Texans and American citizens and the migrants themselves coming over. Um, so then started trying to apply because the thing is, is that when people begin to understand kind of what's going on, they get overwhelmed that that's part of our human nature, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, well, what can I do? What can I do? Mm -hmm. um, so I started researching and finding ways and getting connected. I've been very blessed to get connected with experts and larger think tanks and trying to find ways that we can try to address these issues on the local city, county, and of course, on the state level. So that's been um, our, our major focus. And fast forward, here I am, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a wild ride. And like I said, just yesterday, I was out here in Austin fighting for our first bill um, uh, with regards to the facilities. So I, I, it's, it's been kind of crazy, um, but I'm very, very thankful to, um, to have the opportunity to try and be a, a, at least a singular voice, an everyday regular American trying to do something. So yeah, well, and it's been it's been neat to see that journey that you have been on and hear a little bit of the backstory of it, because just in April, that journey of saying yes to entering this political space actually brought you to Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and you testified before the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration, Integrity, Security, and Enforcement. And that hearing was specifically looking at what is happening at the border in relation to kids and children and how policies are affecting minors who are coming to the border. Um, and you said during your testimony that you have been to the border almost three dozen times within a span of two years. Why did you start taking so many trips to our southern border? So thank you for asking that. Yeah, because prior to that, again, I live in North Texas. I'm, I'm in the DFW area right between Dallas and Fort Worth. So prior to that, I had never really been further south than San Antonio, which if you understand how big Texas is, that's not that inconceivable, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so the very first time that I had visited the border, I, I, I know it might sound a little strange, but I really felt a calling to go and I couldn't understand why. Hmm. And I remember then my husband going, oh, but it's just one time, right? And it was to Laredo. And I'm like, yeah, babe, this is totally like, I'm just going to go see for myself because I don't believe, unfortunately, we're in a place in our society currently where we cannot necessarily trust what we're seeing in the news and in the media. And me being kind of, I've always liked trust but verify, I, I felt driven to go down and see for myself. Um, most of what I had seen is actually grown adult males. And that's actually the, the very first encounter that I had down there in Laredo. We got there probably close to about midnight. It was very dark. And there was one border patrol agent um, to uh, pods. We, we encountered about 60 different men, all um, young men, uh, to the one border patrol agent. And he looked at me, didn't know me from anywhere and said, I need help. We're being invaded. And from that moment on, I'm like, I started praying and I'm like, Lord, like, I, what do I do? Like, I felt called to go down and I'm going, now what? 
And uh, it just different situations kept on uh, coming up where it kept on driving me to different areas. Um, and so now I had been everywhere from the RGV, the Rio Grande Valley, um, McAllen, Roma, La Jolla, a few times where I encountered a lot of these younger unaccompanied minors that I testified about, um, Laredo. Uh, spent a lot of time concentrating in the Del Rio sector um, because we're trying again. There were several people like Brent Smith, which is a Kinney County um, attorney, um, you know, trying to find ways of how we can try to combat this on the state and local levels um, up to El Paso and, and, and also out there in Yuma. Um, so it's 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 really been and then trying to fill in those gaps from what was happening. What I'm seeing, like even with Operation Lone Star in Texas, what am I seeing and encountering and getting information from the locals that live there to the law enforcement that are boots on the ground? And how do I fill in that gap between that, what's actually happening in Austin, where policies are being driven? So trying to bring that um, different, unique, um, if you will, because a lot of it is like top brass, which is great, but it's also important to hear from the boots on the ground. And then also having, like we just saw in the news, um, the, the travesty that happened in, in, um, in Cleveland, Texas. I had been there. I'd been there on an assignment. So that, that's hundreds of miles away from the border. And then also seeing how it's impacted my respective area, it kind of brings together a different, unique perspective of connecting the dots, if you will. So. Well, and when, when we talk about unaccompanied minors arriving at the border, obviously I think, you know, everyone can agree this isn't okay. Uh, and you sort of start asking the question of why are these kids showing up at the border without a parent, without some sort of adult? Did they walk there by themselves? What's going on? In, in all of your trips down there, what have you learned as to why minors are showing up unaccompanied at the border? Who is sending them? How did they get there? Yeah, so I really appreciate that question. Um, you know, unaccompanied minors you'll kind of experience all along the border in different areas. But one of the reasons why I was also attracted to the Roma and La Jolla areas because that's where you generally see some of the younger um, children coming over because most of the unaccompanied minors are old, like teenagers, older teens. Um, and, and I started asking those questions, um, like who, how, did you, how does a 10 year old girl come from Honduras by herself, mm -hmm. for example. And several of these children had similar stories. They were just told that they were coming to the United States. This is coming from their mouths. Now I can't verify of any of their stories, the validity of it, but it, this is coming from them, right? And kind of correlating with what we were seeing. And that's why in the congressional hearing, it kind of, I felt like gave the whole picture where I had encountered the stories of what they were saying. And Tara Rodas, who was the whistleblower, from inside HHS where she, what happens to the children afterwards. And it was kind of this full circle moment. So what I began seeing was a lot of these children saying, I was just told I'm coming. People within NGOs, they, they said like women inside these bodegas, which are like warehouses, um, you know, we're telling them, this is who your sponsor is gonna be. When you get there, this is to your mother, this is to your father, this is to your theo, your aunt, your uncle um, that are already here in the United States. And so I would ask them like, well, do you, have you spoken to them? Are they excited that you're coming? You know, things like that. And um, they, they had no idea. I've never spoken to them. My mother, my father, I've never spoken to them. I, I, I'm hoping to go, like one girl, the 10-year-old from Honduras, I'm hoping to go in color and get to know my father. Like, and it's devastating because these pieces of paper with handwritten numbers on it, and these children are going to people that they have never even spoken to. 
um, for that strangers are telling them who they're who, who to ask for when they arrive. When I asked, well, how, how did you pay? How did you pay to come? Well, the people, the people paid. They said, as long as I was going to the United States, that, 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 that I would be okay to come. Um, shoved into these warehouses, shoved into the back of 18 wheelers, um, raped along the way. A, a good number of them, unfortunately, encountered a lot of violence along the way. Um, now, some of them, some of the older, so I've also encountered some older teenagers around 16 to 17 was what they had claimed, for example, in the Del Rio sector that were not turning themselves in, that were hiding in the brush. Um, and, and that's even more concerning, right? Because it's like, why are you trying to hide? Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, we also have the, the other individuals where we've seen men, grown men coming over with these young children, claiming that they're their adopted daughters, their adopted sons. Um, and yet they don't even know their names. They don't even know their date of birth. Um, and there's no way because of the policies to really verify and vet. So th there's a wide scope of things that are occurring. And then simultaneously, these types of facilities holding these unaccompanied minors are, are, are exploding, exponentially growing all over Texas and the United States. According to ORR, they're up to now 27 states with nearly 300 facilities. And I expect with Title 42 lifting that that number will grow up higher. So this is literally bringing the issues of these unaccompanied minors being trafficked potentially in your viewer's backyard without them even being aware of it. Mm. Sheena, I, I know that this is, it's such a layered issue and there's so many moving parts. And of course, every everyone's story is different for every illegal alien for every child they're coming from a, a different situation um but like let's take for example you know the little girl who said she's coming to meet her father and just wants to color how how does that journey begin i mean has she been left with like an aunt in south america who's now sending her to America in hopes of a better life that, you know, her parents have already come to America, have her parents, um, you know, sent her alone in hopes of her having a better life, but they're still in South America. Is it both? And I, I think it's just hard. It's hard to wrap your mind around, um, you know, family members just sort of shoving their kids off and saying, I, I hope for the best. Um, but of course, we know, uh, you know, for, for I think 99% of parents, they do have good intentions for their kids. They want to see their child have a better life. So is that what's playing out here that parents are being lied to and they're being told, you know, your child, if they come with me, they can have more opportunities. What do we really know? I greatly appreciate that question for so many reasons. Yes, every situation is a little bit different and a little bit unique, right? And again, we cannot necessarily verify the validity of their claims. Mm -hmm. um, we can only go by what they're saying and what we're experiencing, right? Um, but I've seen everything from, I encountered one woman in a larger group in the RGV in the Rio Grande Valley that I watched crossover with um, at the hands of the coyotes on a raft um, and had brought her very tiny baby with her. It uh, turned out that she said that it was a, the baby was born prematurely a day shy of a month old. Mm -hmm. And the reason I, I'm, I'm saying this for, for a reason, when, when, when they came up and I started asking questions like why, what would motivate you? Because like you said, I'm a mom. It's, it's very difficult, I think, for Americans and for mothers uh, and for fathers, especially like how can you, how, we can't conceive trying, you know, putting our children in the hands of strangers. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, and there's very different reasons as to why, and, and not all of them well-intentioned, unfortunately. So in the case of this woman, when I had asked her, what, what motivated you to come now, right, with such a perilous journey, she had stated that she was shoved into the back of 18-wheelers using Facebook to guide them. The group collectively said Facebook helped to guide them on the route along. All of this is documented. She had also stated, again, and many of them chimed, chimed in in the group in agreeance, that they had seen what motivated her to come was because of the policies essentially they had seen the news reports on telemundo saying that children that people individuals that adults with young children under a certain age okay. were being accepted into the united states and that children being sent by themselves were being accepted into the united states so they saw that as their way that as long as they were coming crossing with children that they would be accepted in and i feel like that gives us an insight into what is really the root causes that is driving the use of children let's talk a little bit more about those root causes because i think that's a really interesting point is you know our heart of compassion is first wow family in need a single child alone uh, they need provision but how how has this played out what's the backstory the policies that led to this um what we're seeing from the Biden administration, how how have the Biden administration's policies, um, Mayorkas's um, decisions made around border security, border policies, how has that played a role in the sheer number of kids, do you think, that are showing up at our southern border unaccompanied? So really, what we're seeing, as I've understand it, and in, in, in researching and all of this over the last few years, is that really what started driving the unaccompanied minors began years ago, particularly at, like around the, the Obama administration with the Flora settlement. Um, those shifts and those changes in like the DACA programs, anytime that DACA or asylum is, is mentioned, comes out of anybody's mouths on mainstream media, there's people coming. Um, and, and really now what we're seeing more recently since the Biden administration's come in is even more incentivization. Mm -hmm. For example, um, the idea that you can claim asylum as long as you are a family uh, unit, that anyone with a child under the age of seven can come in. And that also uh, helps to force self-separation, family self-separation as well. We're like, we'll have a better opportunity to split up as a family. I stay with our, our little boy or little girl and you as a 15 year old come in separately as an unaccompanied minor and we'll, we will reunify. Um, well, again, they're putting their, their children and their children's lives and themselves into the hands of cartel smugglers that use these people as commodities. They, there's dollar symbols for every head. They don't care about them. So they're giving their children to criminal cartel organizations and transnational organizations that are known for trafficking, known for sex trafficking, and hoping that they'll be able to reunite on the other side. And this is all driven by those policies. Again, when you incentivize and you, you, you incentivize the separation of families, <laughs> this is one of the things that people don't talk about. Everyone wants to talk about the separation of families. 
these policies are incentivizing the separation of families so that they have a better chance to cross in if they have a younger child or an unaccompanied minor coming in by themselves. Um, and again, that, that, those, that's some of the shifts that we've seen. I'll also mention one other thing quickly. I got some information from a, uh, a friend of mine that's an agent in the Del Rio sector who said that they're now even seeing an increase of unaccompanied minors from Mexico, meaning Mexican nationals. There was even a case where a grandmother dropped off, essentially dropped off a young child gave the Border Patrol the information, the numbers to a the father who supposedly lives here in the United States. When asked where the mother was, she stated that the mother's still in Mexico. And then essentially the, grand, the grandmother self-deported. This is what's happening. We are now at the point where Mexicans are anticipating being allowed in. This is unprecedented. And this is also driving the numbers of unaccompanied minors, even from uh, Mexican origin. So in a situation like that, where a child shows up, they have a phone number, what do we know about what happens to those kids uh, a week, a month, a year down the road? We, we've learned recently, the Biden administration has said before Congress that they have, have lost contact. They're not aware of where 85,000 minors are unaccompanied alien children. Uh, and, and that is because um, the, the laws are written as such that the sponsors who are taking these children, they're not required to report in. Uh, and then the government isn't required to keep on tracking once they're connected with that sponsor. They're not required to keep on tracking the whereabouts of that child. So these kids were connected with sponsors, but we don't actually know if those were legitimate family members and how they're doing now that they've been connected. Do we have any sort of sense of among those 85,000 children that are somewhere in America, how many are in fact with a legitimate family member versus something much, much worse? Unfortunately, we don't know. Um, I had a private and, and the issues within, again, these policies even after the children arrive, uh, we just spoke extensively about the policies driving them here, but then even after the children arrive, what happens from there? And that's where it ties in with these facilities blowing up kind of everywhere, uh, explode, like just growing exponentially. But then the policies of there and after, the vetting of the sponsors is not adequate. It's just simply not. And I even had, I, I was given the opportunity, which I was very grateful for, to sit down and have a private one-on-one -on -one meeting with a, a, a rather large NGO, non-governmental organization operating in the state of Texas. And I asked them um, some crucial questions um, and there was some discrepancies. And I even asked them in the spirit of trying to find some solutions, what would you suggest? So even NGOs that are honest are going, well, we can only follow up with them for 30 days. HHS contracts us, an NGO, to house these unaccompanied minors while they're being you know, vetted or finding their sponsors. And then they also contract us for vetting the sponsors that they're being released to. But then HHS, there's, there's a number of stipulations where the vast majority of the people that are sponsoring these children, even according since 2016 to a congressional investigation, over 60% then said that over 60% of them were illegal aliens themselves. Mm. So think about that. We can't vet, there's no way for us to properly vet yeah. people who aren't even here legally. And 
then when you take away DNA test, when you take away fingerprinting, when you take away the vetting of even the people who are living inside of the home, supposedly, and when you take away the ability to even, which is what HHS has done, has said, you cannot, even as an NGO, you cannot follow up in person to do an in-person visit to the home and to the child, even if the local school is saying, hey, this child, this minor is not arriving at school. And then they are not even required, these, these NGOs are not even required to report these children like falling through the cracks to local and state agencies. So this is where it is an opportunity for the states to step up and to start uh, trying to take some actions to fill in this gap, the, these gaps that so many of these children are following through and because the federal government and the federal agencies have failed for a number of years, but now it's exploding at unprecedented levels and it's only going to get worse. It's very disturbing. Well, in your organization, Alliance for a Safe Texas, that, that's one of your core missions is to get that uh, that state involvement at a policy level. And that's something that you mentioned earlier, you all have, have just taken on, you've introduced um, and are advocating for, for a bill in Texas. Talk a little bit about that and what that bill would do. Thank you so much. Yes. So our bill was HB 5000. Representative Stan Kitzman, um, he's a freshman. He, he's a, he's one to definitely keep an eye on for all things conservative moving forward. So thankful for that relationship with him um, and him working on this with us. He HB 5000, just it, it's actually very simple. All it states is that if it were passed, that these HHS contracted facilities are licensed by the state of Texas. Hmm. Why is that important? Because that would give us an opportunity to have much needed oversight. It at least gives us the chance to get a foot in the door because there's so many issues that even the local cities, uh, a lot of them are rural areas already strapped for resources. Um, it gives us an opportunity as a state to give oversight, basically puts it under the same um, mandates and requirements, if you will, as like our state foster care system, right, which seems simple. It seems like why common sense. Why aren't we doing this? Florida and South Carolina, especially Florida, have already put in many regulations since 2013. They strengthened them in 2019 and they're strengthening them even further as far as these facilities. And next, I believe that they're going to start cracking down on the sponsors because they have done an investigation on the state level. I'm um, asking like of, of finding out what is happening with the children in their state. And that's also Stan Kitzman once again has also come up to come up to the plate and he also also has sponsored our uh, our letter asking for the same exact type of state level investigation in the state of Texas. I'm thankful, so thankful to announce that we have bipartisan support from state legislators, both Democrats and Republicans have signed on to it. And we will be sending that letter shortly here to, um, to our AG's office here. Um, and, and again, hopefully if a federal level investigation is mm -hmm. done, then hopefully these investigations on the state level will help with those types of investigations um, moving forward as well. And so I want to encourage that if people are overwhelmed like I was, like, what can I do? They can try and take what we're trying to do here in Texas and implement it in their respective areas. Well, and for anyone who is listening who wants to hear more about the work that you're doing uh, and the work of Alliance for a Safe Texas, you can check out the website, which is securetheborder.us. And Sheena, I just really want to thank you for your time and for breaking 
down what can feel like a really overwhelming issue, what is honestly a really overwhelming issue and one that is very multifaceted, but is so, so pressing right now. Sheena Rodriguez, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We're going to leave it there for today. But if you haven't had the chance to check out our evening show right here in this podcast feed, make sure to take a moment today to do so. Every day, our evening show comes out around 5 p.m. And also make sure to subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you like to listen to podcasts and help us reach more listeners by taking just a moment to leave a five-star rating and review. Thanks so much for joining us this Monday morning, and we'll see you right back here at 5 p.m. for our top news edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.